Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King, and we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we have been in the book of Exodus for, well, I was going to say a few weeks, but it's really been a few months, hasn't it? Um, and we are in Exodus chapter 12 this morning. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. You can also follow along in your order of service. If you remember from last week, we uh, looked at the first nine plagues that God brought upon Egypt. God uh, was calling Pharaoh to release Israel from their bondage, from their slavery, but Pharaoh continued to resist again and again and again. And so as a way of motivating them, as a way of encouraging them to release Israel into the wilderness, to give them Away from their slavery, God brought these plagues upon them, these plagues of judgment. Last week we looked at just the first nine, but this morning we we have one left to go. It's the most severe of the plagues, the death of the firstborn. This plague that came upon Pharaoh in Egypt that, that is also the Passover. And so we're going to look at this last plague and look at this Passover meal And what this meal was a sign of to Israel, not just for that first Passover generation, but for the generations to come. And so let's read from Exodus chapter 12. We're not going to read all 42 verses that are printed there in your order of service. We'll just read a portion of it. We'll begin at verse 21, when Moses calls the elders of Israel, and he says this to them. Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the door, two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute forever and for your sons forever. And when, you and, and when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want you all to think about a celebration occasion in which you gather with other people to, to celebrate, to, uh, to 
eat and to drink, to spend time with one another. I want you to think about an anniversary or a wedding, a birthday or a graduation. Maybe it's a welcoming of new people or a sending away of good friends. I want you to think about those celebrations. We've all been to those times, had those experiences. What, is, what, is, what are the things that are uh, familiar about each one of those? What are the things that overlap from each of those occasions that you can think of? Well, surely it's the gathering of friends, it's the talking, it's the laughing, it's the sending one another away. But in each one of those instances, whether it's a wedding or a birthday, whether it's a graduation or an anniversary, the common thread that runs through all of those is food. <laughs> it's as though we can't help but eat when we celebrate. Have you noticed that? Like, if, if you went to a wedding and there was no food at all, I mean, re- regardless of whether it's a formal sit-down dinner or, or simply uh, heavy hors d'oeuvres, whatever, but if there was no food, it would be strange, wouldn't it? It's like, why did I come, right? I thought I was going to get a good meal. No, 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 that's not why you go to a wedding. But, right, it would be weird. Or if you went to a birthday and there was no cake, that would be bizarre. Or graduation, there was no drink, right? It, it would be strange, It's like we cannot celebrate without eating. There's something ingrained in us about that, that celebration, commemoration equals meals. It's ingrained in us. In fact, there are a number of different occasions that I can think of where there is a meal that stands out in my mind. There's one just a little over a year ago as Kat and I were preparing to leave St. Louis to come and and be with y'all. We went and had one last meal with some friends of ours. These dear friends who had been close to us, they, they took us to this nice restaurant, a restaurant we had never been to. It was one of those places that's, you know, white tablecloths, and they're not trying to usher you out the door. They want you to stay and linger, and, and they don't want to just fill your seat. Spend the entire night, right? A nice appetizer, a, a wonderful entree, a good glass of wine, and decadent dessert. Remember this meal. We sat there, and we laughed, and we talked. We, we thought about the past, and we, we thought about what might come in the future. We furrowed our brows at the perplexities of life, and we, we ate and we talked. These good friends of ours, they gave us gifts as we were leaving, a, a bottle of wine and, and a pitcher and, and a bow tie. I didn't wear it today. <laughs> but every time I wear that tie and I look at that pitcher, I think of that meal. I think of that meal and what it commemorated, this friendship, this love for one another. See, that meal reminds us of that. It was a celebration of our friendship. There's something ingrained in our very DNA that that wants to celebrate over meals, that wants to use table and fellowship, food and drink as a way of commemorating things that are good and things that are worth rejoicing over. It's ingrained in us because that's how God has made us. That's how God often engages with us. That is what he gave to Israel. You see, he didn't just deliver them out of Egypt from their bondage. He gave them a meal. A meal as a way to commemorate what he was about to do, the Passover. This Passover wasn't just for this one time. It was to be repeated again and again and again as a commemoration, a remembrance of all that God had done. That's what I want us to see, that this meal is a sign of this exodus, this exodus story, which was the great deliverance of the Old Testament. Remember, it, 
It was that which was invoked again and again by the prophets, and it was sung by the Psalms. It was to be eaten over table fellowship in their households. This meal that was a sign that entailed all that the Exodus was to entail, the, the wages of their sin, the rationale, the reason for why God needed to deliver them, but, but also the life that he would give. And that's what I want us to see, that this meal that Israel would partake of this one time, but then in the future generations to come, this meal, that's what it tells us about. It tells us about the wages of sin, but it also tells us about the life that God gives. So first, let's consider the wages of their sin. Now, it's seen most clearly in the judgment that God brings on Egypt. We know from last week that that's what the plagues were, right? They were a declaration of God that he was greater than Egypt, greater than Pharaoh, and greater than the gods of Pharaoh and Egypt, but it was also a rebuke and judgment on Egypt for their rejection of Yahweh and for their oppression of Israel, right? He brought gnats and boils, frogs and locusts, but, but now the severity has increased. God ratchets it up. Egypt is not just going to experience discomfort and darkness, but they're going to experience death. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, God promises, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And then in verse 29, if you look there, we read, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn captive who is in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And then verse 30 there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Did you hear that? Not a house where there was not someone dead. God brought judgment. He brought death. He brought plague. Now, I want you to think about this. The, the very thing that happened to Egypt, if we remember the story, the very thing that happened to Egypt was the very thing that they sought to that they sought to enact upon Israel. Now, it's been a number of months since chapter 1, um, but if you remember in chapter 1, it all began, Exodus all began with Israel being enslaved. But remember, that wasn't enough for Pharaoh. He wanted to push the oppression even deeper, and so what does he do? He says to all of Egypt, I want you to take the sons, the baby boys that are born of the Hebrews, and cast them into the Nile. He sought to destroy Israel by killing these boys. And now that very thing that he sought to perpetrate against Israel is coming upon him. The death of the firstborn. That's what's occurring here. The very act that Egypt sought to perpetrate against Israel is being perpetrated against them. God is bringing judgment upon them. The threat of death was a reality for Egypt. But it's not just the threat to Egypt, there's also a threat to Israel. You see, it's not just their sin that is going to be judged, but it's also the sin of Israel. We see it in verse 23 with this new character that we haven't seen before, the destroyer. Almost sounds like a Marvel superhero, doesn't it? Right, Like one of the X-Men or something, the destroyer, but... but but he's greater than that, right? We, we actually don't know who the destroyer is. Uh, there's a lot of speculation. Some people think that he was maybe the angel of the Lord. 
Others think that maybe it was just a general angel. But what we do know is that the destroyer is an agent of God. That the destroyer is an agent of God and he is coming to bring judgment and to bring death on behalf of God. From the context, we know where he's going, the houses of Egypt, but also he's going to the houses of Israel. Did you notice that in verse 23? God is speaking to Israel at this point through Moses. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. He will go by your house. That is what he is talking about. And the reason is because judgment comes not just simply for the judgment of opposition to Yahweh that Egypt perpetrated, but also for sin in general. Israel's sin was different than Egypt's, but they had sinned nonetheless. They had rejected God's prophet Moses and ignored his word. They had questioned God's providence, and in their very nature, they were sons of Adam and part of his guilty race. As one Old Testament theologian put it, Alec Matier, he said that there were two nations in the land of Egypt, but they were both resistant to the word of God, and if God comes in judgment, none will escape. Judgment was coming. Egypt and Israel both had fallen short of the glory of God. But the Bible tells us that we have as well. That it is not just Israel and Egypt who have fallen short, but so too have we. Now, I imagine that there might be some of you who are sitting there and you're thinking, how is this fair? Like, for, for God to come with this sort of force against Egypt, for God to threaten death even to Israel, how, how can this be fair? I mean, it seems like God's just kind of using his power and authority sort of in an irresponsible way, right? Maybe. Maybe you're not asking that question, but I guarantee you a neighbor is. And if a neighbor isn't, our, our culture is, they're wondering, how is it that God can do such things as are spelled out in Exodus 12 and still be considered good and fair and right? That's a good question. It's a fair question. It's a question that we have to take up, but, but it's a question that we need to turn a little bit. Because you see, in even asking that question, we are making assumptions about the innocence of Egypt and Israel and us, aren't we? We're making assumptions that, that we, we're not deserving of this sort of judgment. That we are innocent before a holy God. But the truth is, is that what the Bible tells us is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. That there is no distinction. That man and woman, Israel and Egypt, that we have all fallen short. And that because we have fallen short, the Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. And so when we look at a holy God, we are confronted by our unholiness. And when we stand before a perfect God, we see our imperfections. And when we gaze into his face... We have to turn our eyes away in guilt because we know we have not stood, before, stood up to his standard. We have fallen short again and again and again. And so the truth is, is that the only fair thing is for judgment. Not just for Egypt and not just for Israel, but for us. That is what we are deserving. That if we really want a fair God, 
then we would get exactly what Egypt was getting. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And every year, as Israel would eat this meal, as, as the cries of horror would ring in their ears, they would be recounting, they would be rehearsing and retelling the price of their rebellion. They would be retelling the wages of their sin, that judgment wasn't just lurking outside the doors of Egypt, but they were lurking, it was lurking outside the doors of Israel as well. The wages of sin is death. But if the story ended there, then all the subsequent meals would simply be meals of warning. They would simply be meals of warning. But they weren't that. You see, it wasn't just warning that these meals pointed towards. It was also celebration. It was celebration because not only did this meal reflect a sign of the wages of their sin, but it also is a sign of the gift of life that God has given. And that's the second thing I want us to see, the, the gift of life. <laughs> that's stuck. The gift of life. Now, how does this life come? Well, it comes through blood. It comes through blood. Now, that might seem odd to some people that life actually comes through the shedding of blood because oftentimes when we think of blood, we don't think of life, we think of death, right? We think of fear, we think of worry. We see blood and it, it gives us great concern. And so the other day, Mead is sitting up in our uh, new house on the second floor we just moved into a new house, and there's carpeting on the second floor. She's sitting in the hallway. She's sitting there. She's coloring. She's uh, playing a game. I forget exactly what she's doing, but she's sitting there having a good time. She told me I could tell this story, so uh, if y'all are wondering, she said I could. And so there she is. She's sitting there, and I come up the stairs, and she's sitting on this white carpet. And I look down. Nothing really catches my eye until I give a little bit closer look, and there is red on the carpet. And there's little red spots all over the carpet and leading out of the bathroom. And, and I first start thinking, well, it's paint or glitter glue or something crazy like, right? Like one of these things that we, I hate. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> right? Glitter glue will not make it through the, the purifying fires of the eschaton. I guarantee you that. <laughs> um, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, that's what I see on the carpet. And I say to Mead, uh, you know, I say very calmly, Mead, sweetheart, what is that? Right, that's not how I responded, right? I'm like, what is the red on the floor? Why do you have paint or glitter glue or some other thing that is a product of the fall that is on my nice white carpet? <laughs> and she looks up very innocently, and she's not sure. And I say, look at your feet. You've been, tra you know, tracking it all through. And she looks at her feet, and she... She looks closer, and she realizes it's not paint, it's blood. And how does she respond? I'm bleeding, <laughs> right? <laughs> she screams, I'm bleeding. <laughs> and we calm her down, and we go into the bathroom, and we clean it off. And it was just this tiny, tiny little prick. But her response, I'm bleeding, <laughs> I'm bleeding. Right? That's how we respond when we see blood, right? Unless you're a doctor, <laughs> right? We... It gives us concern. It makes us feel a little wheezy because the shedding of blood means death. 
It means death, and so there's something in us we know intuitively that we shouldn't be bleeding, that it needs to stay inside, and so we respond in these ways of worry and concern and fear, just like me did to that little tiny prick. Now, I want you to think about the amount of blood that would have been shed that night. A one-year-old lamb. So our resident uh, shepherd, Chuck Brinkman, uh, who raises lambs, told me that a one-year-old lamb is about full-grown. It's almost adult size. And on the small size, a one-year-old lamb is going to be between 80 and 100 or so pounds. And that was sacrificed. The blood of that lamb was drained. It would have been everywhere, right? Like, they, they couldn't have contained it. It would have been on their hands and their clothes, right? If, if they had carpet, it would have been in the carpet. It's not white anymore. <laughs> they filled it with a bowl. Think about that. A bowl full of blood. If that doesn't make you squeamy, they dipped hyssop in it. And they painted the lintel and the doorposts with it. The blood that was shed. Why? Why was so much blood needed to be shed? Why, why was that life needing to be taken? Because the wages of sin is death. And in order for there to be life, death must come. Blood must be shed. Sin must be atoned for. And that's exactly what is happening. It's exactly what's happening. Look at verses 21 through 23. Moses called the elders, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. And will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Did you see it? That the blood covers them. The blood is a way of God protecting his people. When the destroyer comes, the destroyer is lurking outside of the door of Israel. But God would see the blood and he would not allow the destroyer to enter. This agent of death wouldn't be allowed to come into the house because they were behind the blood. They were covered by it. I mean, no, look at verse 22 at the very end. Moses says, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Why does he say that? Because outside their house, they're no longer covered by the blood. They're on their own. And on their own would mean death. So what that means is it's not about their ethnicity. And it's not about their family lineage or their status in the community. No, if... If they left their homes and left the protection of the blood and they had to face death and the destroyer, they would die. But under the blood, they were protected. It is only by blood that sins are forgiven and death is passed over and our sin is atoned for. And that is what God provided for them. Think about that first Passover night as the firstborn was sitting at the table and as the family was eating, 
the unleavened bread and tasting the bitter herbs and eating the roasted lamb and the smell of blood was still in the air. The firstborn would have known that if it were not for the death of that lamb, I would have died. It's by the blood that they are saved, that they are covered. And the same is true for us. See, you too need to be covered and protected by the blood of the Lamb, and the good news is that God has done that. He's given you a better Lamb. He's given you the best Lamb. Think about this. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, he's not saying that, God's, that Jesus was born, that he's created, right? He's begotten, not made, right? So, So remove yourself. What he's talking about is that Jesus has preeminence over the whole universe. The firstborn over all creation did not protect his life, but he gave his life so that you would live. That the king over heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, took on flesh and became the Passover lamb. That's what Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 5. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you. That his blood would cover you. That his blood would cover you so that we would not find death because of our sins, but we would find peace through the blood of his cross. That's what we have. And so the question has to be, what covers you? What are you standing under? Is it the blood of Christ? Is it your good deeds? Is it your moral actions? Is it how much you love your family or how successful you are at your job? Because if it is is anything other than Christ, if it is anything other than his shed blood on the cross, then death is lurking. That is the truth. Death is lurking. It is only by Christ's blood that you are covered and that sins are forgiven. And so if that, if that is not your testimony, if that is not your faith, do, do not wait. Do not wait for tomorrow or a week or when your kids get older and you'll finally get serious about church. Don't, don't wait till then. Today is the day. Today is the day that your sins would be covered, that they would be forgiven, that you would stand under the blood of Christ. Friends, we are all in need of grace, and grace comes, as John the Baptist proclaimed in John, through the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Gift of life. That's what this passage tells us about. That's what this meal is telling us. But there's one more thing about this gift of life that I want to point out. There's actually lots of things, and, and we could go on for many sermons, but there's one more thing I want to point out this morning. This gift of life, it wasn't just celebrated that one night. I said already that it was repeated again and again and again. Every year, they would rehearse and recount all that God had done, how he had spared their lives through the lamb who wasn't spared. But look why they recounted it. It wasn't just for their own sake. It was for the sake of their children. Did you see that? In verse 25, when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, As he has promised, you shall keep this service. 
And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. You see that God's concern is for the entire household. It's not just for the adults. It's not just for the 20 plus, right? It's not just for the wise or the elderly. It's for the entire household. His purview isn't just for this first generation of the Passover. It's for the generations to come year after year after year. When the children ask, you shall tell them of God's great act of deliverance, of of the judgment for our sin, but of his gift of grace. And so you know what this means? It means that parents, and not just parents, but all adults, that we are to live our faith before the children. That we are to live our faith before our kids. Not just the kids that are our own, but but the kids that are sitting beside you and in front of you and behind you. We are to live out our faith before them. That, That we are to live in such a way that shows them what it looks like to faithfully follow God. That's what Israel would have been doing as they were doing the Passover again and again and again. They were showing their children what it meant to faithfully follow God. And so we need to let our kids hear us pray. And we need to let them catch us, (laughs) catch us, reading the word. And we need to let them hear us say words of repentance and ask for forgiveness. We need to let them hear words of grace and peace on our lips. What this means is that we need to be thinking about what what we want as a church, what, what we want CTK to be, not just in light of what we want as adults, but, but the kind of church we want to pass on to our children and to our grandchildren and to generations to come who will never even know our names, who will never know that we existed, that, that we want to pass on what it means to follow Jesus for generation to generation, that, that one generation will extol your works to another. That we should have a longer view in mind in regards to our own faithfulness. But kids, there's something for you to do, too. There's something for you to do. So it means that you need to watch us. (laughs) I got to tell you, that's a little scary thing. Kind of almost didn't say it. (laughs) Because I know my own heart, right? I know what I do and what I don't do and what I say and I shouldn't say, right? but, But you are to watch us, kids, and you're to ask us. And so in a few minutes, kids, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework today. In a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to come forward, and we're going to partake. And so, kids, I want you today, maybe it's on the drive home, maybe it's over lunch, maybe it's sometime during this week, I I want you to, to ask your parents or ask another adult here or ask me. I want you to ask, why do we do this? In fact, that's, that's what you should be asking. Why do we do this? Ask, ask us about our faith. Ask us about about where we're struggling to walk faithfully with God. Ask us what it looks like for us to, to try and walk even imperf- imperfectly with the Lord. Ask us about successes and failures, hopes and dreams of what God has done in our lives. Ask us. That's your homework for today. You need to ask your parents and ask the adults, ask the generation before what it looks like to walk, walk and follow the Lord.
watch and ask. You see, friends, the, the reality is, is that God's deliverance and our faithful response to his deliverance is not just for ourselves. It's for those who would come after us. It's for those who would watch us and who would see us and who would hear the words of deliverance. Now, from this time forward, every year, Israel would come together and they would celebrate this meal. They would come together and they would celebrate this meal before there were other feasts. We know that there are other feasts. As we read through the Pentateuch, we would hear of them. Before there were other feasts, there was Passover, the central meal. And, and it was at Passover, many years later, after this first one, that, that Jesus was eating with his disciples. And he was eating with his friends. And he sat at table and he gave us a better meal new meal. He gave us the supper. It was at that Passover that Jesus said, this is my body, this bread, and it will break. He said, this is the cup, which is my blood, and it will be shed. You see, in that meal, Jesus was declaring to us that the good and right and best Passover lamb had come, and he would be sacrificed, and his blood would be shed so that the wages for our sin would be paid and we would be covered by his blood and that the gift of new and eternal life would come. That is the meal that he gave to us. And that is the meal that we will eat. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we do thank you for the grace that you have shown to us, the grace that you have poured out upon us, the, the gift of new life that you have given. We thank you that you have judged our sins, but you have put that judgment upon Jesus. Christ, we are thankful for your sacrifice. That you are our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed on our behalf. And so we ask that you would help us to live faithful lives in response to your gift of life. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said together, amen.